Hello and welcome to the London School of Theology podcast. You are listening to our weekly chapel service. Today's speaker is Dr. David Hilborn. London School of Theology. Forming disciples. Resourcing churches. Impacting society. The theme of sermons for this term is becoming like Christ. And the passage that I want to preach on this morning that we've just heard from Ephesians 5 is one of the great passages about imitating Christ, about following Christ, about becoming like Christ. And it's a passage which is suffused with images of light and darkness. And light and darkness are front page news right now, aren't they? The energy crisis that's been prompted by the war in Ukraine and Russia's stemming of gas pipelines to Western Europe have triggered crises in the supply of electricity and people are getting quite worried. Perhaps you are this winter about what's going to happen around all of that. The Independent newspaper on Friday had a headline, Truss, our new Prime Minister Liz Truss, pleads with EU leaders to keep the lights on. And Channel 4 News on its website said the UK could face daily energy blackouts before Christmas. Now, there will be some people in this room that are older than me, but perhaps not so many, who can remember the last time we had blackouts in the UK, which was in 1973-4. They were prompted by a minor strike And also, we've just heard about Arab-Israeli conflict by a war in the Middle East between Arabs and Israelis. One of the great sorrows of our world is that that tension doesn't seem to go away. And in that experience of a seven-year-old, as I sat at my parents' dining table with an oil lamp, the only way of lighting our dinner... One thing I realised in that moment was just how much I'd taken light for granted and how it became far more intense for me when I was deprived of it. And it's not surprising given how fundamental it is to our life and well-being that light features so foundationally in Scripture. As an image in all its fullness of the life that we're supposed to live as those made in people, made in God's image, as those who are called to worship Him. Light's the motor of creation, isn't it? In Genesis 1 to 3, God says, Let there be light, and creation comes about. Israel, God's chosen people, are a light to the nations in Isaiah 42 6. And that Prophecy is fulfilled in the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, who becomes the saviour of all peoples. Jesus is the light of all humanity. In John 1.4, he himself describes himself as the light of the world in John chapter 8. Sometimes light bursts into a biblical scene suddenly, And dramatically, think of Paul on the road to Damascus in verse 3 of chapter 9. Immediately, the text says, a light from heaven flashed around him, 
blinded him for three days, the literal divine manifestation and a symbol of the monumental change in his life as it was ordered around Christ in that moment. Think of Peter in jail in Acts 12, verse 7. The angel sheds light, the light of the gospel in his cell, frees him from his chains, and he's liberated from incarceration. Dramatic, sudden explosions of light are there in Scripture. But you know what? Light, much more commonly in the Bible, is something that develops, it dawns, and it leads to awakening, enlightenment over time, like the sunrise gradually coming over the horizon and then as we can see out of the windows today, lighting up everything. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And again, Paul in Romans 13, 12, The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Those and other texts like them focus on that awakening as a gradual, incremental process. They link them to maturing as a Christian, to discipleship as a day-to-day development, continually, persistently and faithfully based on that calling to become like Christ, which is our theme in chapel for this term. And that's the tenor, that's the focus of our reading for this morning from Ephesians 5. Paul himself might have been languishing in his own dark dungeon, maybe around AD 60, when he writes this circular letter to various churches. So perhaps it's not surprising that he sounds a keynote near the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 18, when he says to his readers, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you, a developmental, a gradual, an unfolding process of coming to know Christ better, following him more nearly and more closely day by day. And here in chapter 5, our reading for this morning, light is extended as a metaphor for maturing in Christ and progressing in discipleship, for lifelong obedience and faithfulness. You probably picked up from the Conservative Party conference last week that Liz Chuss's headline in her speech was growth, growth, growth. And of course she's talking about economic growth. Whether that happens or not remains to be seen. But the same slogan could well be applied in a very different context here in Ephesians 5 as a summary of Paul's 
concerns and of the images he uses to convey them. But the growth that Paul's emphasising isn't financial. It's not economic. It's spiritual. It's not growth in GDP. It's growth in JC, in Jesus Christ. Look closely, and you'll see that Paul fuses his symbol of light, his central symbol of light and enlightenment in Christ here, together with three other images, all of which are images of growth in Christ, of becoming more like Christ. In fact, as one of my favourite Bible commentators, Leon Morris, puts it, I think quite sort of neatly, Paul has no objection to mixing his metaphors here. A nice sort of understatement um, from Leon Morris. So in verse 9, the apostle speaks of the need of believers to display the fruit of the light. Work that out. In goodness, righteousness and truth, he says, and that in itself is wrapped up into another compound metaphor of being children who walk in the light. Now, folks, let me be frank. I've marked a lot of student essays, as I'm sure my colleagues have on faculty here, and we may well have written, as I have many times in the margin of certain student essays, mixed metaphor, exclamation mark, and not as a good thing. But you won't be surprised to hear me say that Paul mixes his metaphors to sublime effect. Not all of us are quite so capable. I don't know if it's got out yet, but normally the football teams or faculty members are kind of uh, shared quite readily when they join staff teams in my experience. So in case you didn't know, I'm an Arsenal fan. You can groan or cheer now on cue, okay? Thank you very much. And it did amuse me that at the moment there's a documentary doing the rounds uh, which is focused on the manager of Arsenal, Mikel Arteta. And a speech of his in that documentary has gone viral the last few days. I don't know if anybody's seen it. Anybody pick this up? Okay. Well, extraordinarily, um, he makes this kind of uh, amazing uh, rhetorical discourse just before a game. And in the dressing room, Arteta picks up a light bulb which is an unusual thing to do for a football manager to start with. And then uh, on this documentary, he says this, and I've more or less quoted him verbatim, but I've cut out a couple of expletives, okay? <laughs> Just let me note that. So this is what he says pretty much word for word. Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Today, I want to see a team that's connected because a light bulb itself is nothing. I want to see a team that's connected with each other and that shines, and you want to transmit to your teammate light and energy and passion and how you play football. And each of us plays the game connected because what happens when we play connected, guys? We connect with 60,000 fans who create more energy because at the end, it's electricity that through heat creates light and life. Because if not, it would be really dark if that guy Edison didn't have an idea for the light bulb. So go out there, guys. Turn the light on and play football. Let's go! <laughs> it's crazy. 
you kind of get what he's driving at. But when you go back to our scripture, there is a great deal more coherent. So though technically, if you're a stickler for not mixing your metaphors, Paul breaks the rules. But it's Paul, and this is authoritative scripture, so he's allowed to. Whether it's bearing the fruit of Christ's light, or maturing as a child of the light, or walking in the light as a child of the light who bears the fruit of the light, every single image that Paul deploys here is an image of committed, lifelong growth in Christ, of deepening devotion, strengthening discipleship, enhancing effectiveness for Jesus the Lord. Think about it. Fruit grows from a seedling to ripeness. Children grow from infancy through adolescence to adulthood. A walk can become a journey of exploration and discovery, which is why so many Christians have gone on pilgrimage down the centuries and why so many still do. And if you haven't signed up for Matt Nell's theological walking tour of London this Saturday, here's your opportunity. And he's not paying me for that ad break. Think about it more, and fruit needs light to be fruitful through photosynthesis. Humans very literally need light to live at all, let alone to grow to maturity or to walk in light to avoid stumbling and falling. So it's very clear that living in the light of Christ for Paul here means growing in Christ. And it means doing that not so much through spectacular spiritual highs or epiphanies, which literally means a sudden flash of light. More to the point, it means tenacious daily devotion to Jesus. It means patient, resilient faithfulness. But what does that persistently enlightened, ever-awakened faith look like for you, for us, and for me here at LST as we embark on this new academic year? What does it mean for a world, for a nation facing such uncertainty and anxiety right now? Well, to answer that, we need to grasp what Paul means by three key phrases in this passage. The first is discerning God's pleasure in verse 10, or what some translations express as finding out what pleases the Lord. The second is understanding God's will in verse 17. And the third is keeping on being filled with the Spirit in verse 18. And if you think that's a bit of a grammatical mouthful, there's a reason for it which I'll come to. First then, discerning God's pleasure or finding out what pleases the Lord. When Jesus submitted himself to baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan, Matthew, Mark and John all record God the Father saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Or variations of that. Now, of course, the obedience and servant-heartedness of Jesus is incomparable. It's sinless. It's untainted. Devotion from the Son of God himself. 
by comparison, you and I are mired in sin and lost without God's saving grace in Christ. Yet that sense of pleasing God, discerning God's pleasure, or you might say even bearing out, proving, eliciting God's pleasure, is a key way in which we can become more like Christ. This whole first chapter, this whole fifth chapter rather of Ephesians, begins with a call to be imitators of God and of Christ in verses 1 and 2. And it's clear here in verse 10 that just as Jesus pleased God with his obedience in baptism and with everything that marked his ministry through to and beyond the cross, so we're called to please God, to bring God's pleasure through an obedient life, a life that bears fruit in concrete actions of service and self-sacrifice. Already in verses 3 to 7, Paul's made it clear what that sort of obedience to God would seek to avoid. From sexual immorality through greed, obscenity, coarse language and idolatry. But it's important to stress, really important to stress, that pleasing God isn't simply about restraint and prohibition and self-denial. Later, we'll see that Paul commends vibrant singing, the sort of singing we've just done, an exuberant worship. But even here, he encourages thanksgiving. And that's not just a, a type of prayer, along with confession and adoration and intercession and petition and all the rest. It's a whole lifestyle, folks. It's a whole attitude of gratitude to God for the beauty of his creation, the greatest art and culture that come under his oversight, the finest music, literature and theatre, the very most pioneering advances in science and technology. The fruit of the light in verse 9 is all, notice that word, all or everything, that is good, righteous, and true. Not just the stuff that's obviously pious and religious. The American conservative preacher and writer John Piper isn't someone with whom I always agree, but I think he's onto something in his book Desiring God when he speaks of Christian hedonism. His point is if that we're genuinely oriented to God in prayer, Bible study, fellowship, evangelism and social concern, it won't feel like that's an obligation. It won't feel that those things are chores. They'll become pleasures to us. While secular hedonists abandon themselves to their own material or bodily desires. Christian hedonists for Piper are those abandoned to their desire for God, abandoned to their hunger for his word. And my prayer for you is that you'll be hungry for God and his word in this place as you study on your courses. Those callings of God, 
to live or walk in his light, no longer with that attitude of gratitude appear as grim compliance. They are pure joy, the joy of the Lord, the joy of Christ. Paul elsewhere four times uses an analogy of sporting endeavour to bear out the fact that sometimes you have to experience discipline, pain, training hard to reap rewards, to win the prize, to gain the laurel of salvation. Eric Liddell was a missionary passionately called to that vocation. If you've seen the film Chariots of Fire, you'll know the famous speech that he gives to his sister who's challenging him on how much time and effort he's spending on athletic competition. But he says, I believe to her, he says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Pleasure. That's the essence of what Paul is calling the readers of this letter to. It's about discipline leading to joy. It's about schooling and training oneself in the word, leading to profound pleasure, both for yourself and in the eyes of God. The second phrase that's key to understanding how Paul calls us to this lifestyle, this attitude of gratitude, is in verse 17, understanding God's will. Or more specifically, do not be foolish or unwise, he says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, commentators will differ, but the way I read this is that whereas discerning God's pleasure is more about particular actions, moment by moment, understanding of what God wishes for us. Discerning God's will can include that, but also goes to the longer term, the broader, the more strategic planning of our lives to accord with God's way. Another commentator, Andrew Lincoln, sums that verse up like this. He says, Understanding the nature of the times is what Paul is pointing to here. The times in which one lives and making the most of the opportunities that are there for good in the overlap of the ages. The overlap of the ages. In the classroom, as you learn, module by module, that means contextualising theology within contemporary society and politics, as well as within the arc of history. Or to use the phrase of one of my favourite radio programmes, taking the long view. Understanding what the will of the Lord is, both in the short and the far term. And as you do that, it means gaining critical skills that give you authority to commend what is good and righteous and true, to echo verse 10 again, but also, to echo verse 11, to expose what is evil, to gain critical thinking skills, to call out injustice and falsehood and wrongdoing in the world as a whole. 
Paul elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 10.15 talks about demolishing arguments and every pretension set against the knowledge of God. And that includes in his own example and should include in our ministry and witness, calling out political leaders and warmongers when they diverge from the purposes of God. And the third emphasis that helps us to walk in the light of Christ, to adopt this attitude of gratitude, is in verse 18, where Paul enjoins his readers to keep on being filled with the Spirit. That's a long-term proposition as well, folks. That's not a one-off, single, sudden experience. It's not just a blinding flash of intuition. It is expressed in the present imperative. It is something to be revisited and reiterated and re-experienced day by day, week by week, year by year. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. And Paul then goes on to exemplify that with a series of participles which give that sense of continuity and growth, growth, growth in Jesus Christ. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, making music in one's heart to God as we've been doing, always giving thanks to God the Father in the name of Jesus, the attitude of gratitude again, and submitting or being subject to one another out of reverence to Christ. And the most durable of all of those pieces of advice is to keep on worshipping and singing and praising God. Do you know one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn as a teacher of theology, as a leader in theological education, is that worship is the thing that we will be doing into all eternity. So many other things will fall away. Even our credentials, the letters after my name and Mark's name and all my colleagues' names, all of those degrees will fade into the background as we gather in God's providence around the throne of glory and say, Alleluia, Alleluia, to the risen and glorified Christ. I love the fact that Jeffrey Rainwhite's systematic theology is called doxology, which is a word that means the theology of giving glory to God, if you want to be literal about it. But it's a theology that's framed around worship as the most fundamental theological discourse. I did my own PhD on the language of worship. I'm fascinated by the language of worship. But when I was thinking about doing that work, I was also trying to work out whether God was calling me to exercise a gift that you can read about, of course, in 1 Corinthians 13 called speaking in tongues. Now, it's not 
by any means the most important gift. We know that from 1 Corinthians 14. We needn't get into that. The point is that I needed, when I was doing my linguistics study as a prelude to my doctoral work on the language of worship, I needed to analyse, I needed to work through, I needed to know from the inside out rationally whether this was something that I should be exercising, what it was, what it would mean for me. And I was struggling. I was struggling in the study, in the library, to work through what that meant for me as a linguist trained in that particular discipline. And I found myself near Christmas 1982, so you can work out my age from that, as an 18-year-old student, in Talbot Street Pentecostal Church in Nottingham. And we were singing. We were singing. A chorus that some of you might know, most of you won't. I live, I live, because he is risen. I live, I live, to worship him. And as we sung it for perhaps the sixth time, I sang it in a language I didn't know. And that was the beginning of a theological journey which has led to persuading the Church of England to dialogue with Pentecostals, to being on an international commission on Pentecostal-Anglican dialogue, to co-editing a book right now on Anglican-Pentecostal relationships. But that whole calling, that academic calling, began in worship. Friends, the beginning and end of our theology, and Paul is clear about this, is worship. And as you come to chapel on Tuesdays, as you come to chapel other times, as you gather for prayer and singing and worship, This is the primary way that you will keep on being filled with the Spirit of God. What happens here is as important, I'd even say more important, to your growth, growth, growth in Jesus Christ than the essay grades you get at the end of a module or the degree that you're awarded at the end of your programme. I'm here because I believe passionately in theology and academic study, enhancing the spiritual life. But I'm here also to tell you that it begins and ends in worship. So my prayer for you, as you seek to walk in the light of the Lord, as children of the light, as you seek to bear the fruit of the light, is that you may discern God's pleasure, Understand the Lord's will and keep being filled with the Spirit. If that is the result of your time here at LST, we will rejoice on staff and faculty. But more importantly, God will rejoice for you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the London School of Theology podcast. To find out more about LST and our courses, please visit our website 